This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I moved um, relatively recently, and so now I have a commute, and it has completely changed the fabric of my drive. Like, I enjoy getting in the car. I look forward to hearing podcasts sort of the way that I do. Like, you know, that feeling when you have a book sitting on your nightstand and you're just like waiting, you're just counting down the minutes until you can sit there and binge. That's how I feel about podcasts now and driving. Totally. I need to, I need to move so I can drive somewhere. But I feel like New York lends itself to lots of commutes and earbuds and things like that. Yes. And I'm going to find a commute. Just I'm going to give myself an extra commute so I can <laughs> listen. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to Super Women, where we talk to amazing women shaping culture, changing the world, and lifting each other up along the way. I'm your host, Rebecca Minkoff, and today I'm so excited to talk with Hillary Kerr. She's the co-founder and chief ideation officer of Click Media Group. Click is a global media marketing, basically empire, that combines the power of data with its expert editorial team to create content and products that millennial women and Gen Z girls crave. I'm sure you've heard of most of her properties like Who, What, Where, Birdie Beauty, My Domain, Obsessy, and if that weren't enough, her new podcast, Second Life. Hillary is a pioneer in the digital media world and is quite the businesswoman. This is Hillary Kerr on Superwomen. Superwomen is proud to have Prudential as its presenting sponsor. Prudential and wellness expert Alexandra Drain are traveling across America to learn more about our country's challenging financial landscape in a new project called The State of Us. To learn more about the financial challenges facing America, visit prudential.com forward slash state of us. And stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear more about this important project. Thank you for being here with me. You know, I wanted to know what made you decide to start Second Life? Like, how did you get this idea that you want to start a podcast and who you wanted to interview? Well, I think um, podcasts have personally become important to me. I just really love the medium. I love the storytelling. I think like the rest of the world, I fell in love with the show Serial. And then um, around the um, last elections, I fell in love with um, Keeping It 1600 and Pod Save America. And I just thought it would be so interesting to create something sort of more in an inspiring entrepreneurial space that was also, you know, talking to interesting people who were in the lifestyle space, whether they were in tech or in beauty or in fashion or food, whatever that may be. Um, In part also because I think, you know, the whole idea behind Second Life is that I sit down and talk to women who have done one thing and then sort of flip the script, whether it's like a major leap or a minor leap slash pivot, but they've really sort of changed their careers, taken a leap, taken a risk. And I think that's really how careers are these days. And so I wanted to create something that really sort of had some practical tips and tricks about navigating your career and following your dreams and your passions through the lens of these interesting women who have done interesting things. So 
we started it for as a story on my domain and just thought it would really lend itself to a podcast. And we just sort of took a leap. Um, you know, there was we didn't do a lot of research or data, which is normally how we make business decisions. Um, we just thought it was sort of a cool idea, and it was relatively low lift, so we thought, why not? And I also really love talking to people. So um, my business partner, Catherine, always teases me that I should have a podcast called Never Met a Stranger um, because that's sort of how I run in general. But we'll see. Maybe I'll do one of those someday. But in the meantime, we have Second Life, and I am loving doing it. It's so much fun. Well, I love listening to you. And I think that, you know, someone once told me at 35, we go through this midlife crisis of like, what do we do with our career and our life now? And I was like, that's never going to happen to me. Guess what? I'm starting a podcast as my second life. <laughs> I mean, it, it just makes you realize, though, that I, there are so many opportunities open to us in this day and age, and you don't have to follow one single path. I mean, one of the things that I love about you is you are constantly like reinventing and doing interesting things and, and trying things before everyone else in the industry tries them. And I think that's so cool. Like, you just come from a really innovative place, and I don't see that so often in the fashion space, I feel like it's a very much a cult of like, well, this is how it's done. And that's old fashioned. So I love the fact that you have a podcast. I think that is amazing. And also it's right where you should be. Well, thank you uh, very much. That is an honor coming from you, um, which leads me to my first question, because you did talk about evolution and you started Who, What, Where almost 12 years ago. Yeah. October 23rd, 2006. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Our first story, trend report, little leather jackets. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I find the photo of the layout periodically and send it to Catherine just to embarrass her. Um, <laughs> but I'm still, I, it's so cute to look back on it. It's just, it's such a, it's very web 1.0. <laughs> totally. Someone recently in the mail sent me a picture of myself in Lucky Magazine like 13 years ago. And I was like, oh, I oh hope God. that never sees the light of day. Thank gosh. It's not online. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sometimes I think about that too, where I, I, to this day, I'm always like, thank God I went through college before digital film. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So how have you kept up with the evolution? Because I feel like today everything is moving, like in one day everything changes. And obviously earlier that was slower. But how do you and Catherine and the incredible team you have at Click keep up with this beast? Well, I think you got it right in saying incredible team, because truthfully, as whatever vision Catherine and I have, have had in the past, have going forward, we have this insanely talented team who make everything happen and who are really like on the front lines and are who are always bringing us new opportunities and new ideas. So I have to give a lot of credit where credit's due, and that is to the team. The other part of it is, you know, I think that we were weirdos when we started the site originally because you know, she and I both worked for print magazines. We both were editors at Elle. I was in New York. She was in L.A. as the West Coast editor. And, you know, people thought very disparagingly about the Internet in 2006, at least people in the fashion and publishing industry. It was looked at as sort of this, like, second-class citizen. It was very, like, ew, why would you want to do that? That seems so weird. But truthfully, part of the reason we were interested in starting a website is because it was sort of like the rise of digital – it was like the rise of paparazzi photos you would see on gossip websites and all of that stuff. And we wanted to create something that had all of these 
amazing of the moment photos from Wire Image and from, you know, all of these different agencies and from Getty, but without any of the gossip. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could just address the fashion this way and then sort of take it from there? And truthfully, the other part of it is it's really expensive to start a print magazine. It's not really expensive, or it certainly wasn't then, to start a website. I mean, pretty much all of our costs were photo licensing. So I think initially part of the reason where like where the idea came from was us just being scrappy and not having resources. So we were just making do with what we had. Since then, you know, we realized, okay, like we were early on in the space, it was going really well. And I think we realized pretty from pretty much from the jump, again, in being resourceful, that we had to use social media to help market our company because we didn't have a marketing budget. So we got involved with social media really early on. And because of that, that's where so much of our growth opportunities come from. I think that's, you know, we've been early on every single platform. I remember our interns sitting us down at an intern meeting and telling us about Twitter and why it was cool and why we should be on it and why the company should be on it. So Who What Wear was one of the very first fashion publications or publications, period, to get on Twitter. We were really early on Instagram. We were really early on Snapchat. We were the first fashion publisher on Snapchat. So I think because we have, again, this amazing team who brings us lots of opportunities, we've always sort of been quick and early on sort of the next new thing, in part because we're just already in the space and in part because we realized, you know, really from a, you know, scrappy point of view that we needed to utilize these platforms to help grow our company. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I love that you say scrappy because I feel like so many young people today think they have to raise millions of dollars before they can start oh, God, anything. No. And we were scrappy. We actually still are very scrappy. And so hey. it's, <laughs> it's nice to hear that, like, you can build great things with very little as long as you have really great ideas. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like I do feel like it's important to acknowledge that Catherine and I are privileged. We were privileged. We started the company. We didn't have families to support. We didn't have student debt. We didn't have medical debt. Really, all I had to do was I was still freelancing on the side. I had to make rent and pay my COBRA insurance left over from my L days and pay for gas. And that was it. So even though I didn't have a ton of resources, I also wasn't was starting out unburdened by a lot of things that so many people start out with. But, you know, I, I also think that you there's a saying in sleep training for babies, <laughs> um, start as you mean to go on. And I think there's something that sort of rings true about that when it comes to being an entrepreneur as well. And I do think that when you start out scrappy, that's just sort of baked in. So no matter what is going on from a revenue perspective or from um you know institutional money perspective i still have that scrappiness inside me at all times and it, i just can't shake it it's just it's just how we operate and it's how our whole team operates and i think that's just you know part of our dna at this point I was talking with Jessica Alba, who I know you interviewed recently, and I said, you know, how do you know what products to sort of launch next? And she said, our customers sell us everything. We just listen to them. So when you started launching these 
um, new verticals with, you know, my domain and Birdie or Obsessy. Did your customer tell that to you or did you know innately like from somewhere, like my brother just knows sometimes what's going to happen in technology, <laughs> don't know how. Um, um, did you have one of those? That's like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wish I had that. But um, I can tell you what color is going to be great, but that's about it. <laughs> but that's the thing, though. So I think that with everything that we do, it's sort of like if you can imagine a Venn diagram, it's this overlap between art and science and then community. So on one hand, there's sort of like the art or the spidey sense of you know, the, the history of knowing when something is going to pop or when it's a good moment for that. So, for example, with my domain, we had, you know, we had launched Who What Where, Who What Where was doing really well. There was sort of this rise of interest in wardrobes and the way that real people dressed and the way that celebrities dressed and influencers dressed. And so there was all this focus on just the outfit. But then and we saw that things started to expand, that it was about the closet and then it was about the bedroom and then, and then it was about the whole house and then it was about lifestyle and not just the outfit. The outfit was an important part of it, but it was just sort of a stepping stone to really cultivating this like 360 lifestyle and living a life that was stylish in, and thoughtfully curated in all these different ways. At the same time, there was also the fact that Catherine and I were growing up and we were, you know, buying our first home in her case, you know, having my first sort of grown up apartment in my case that didn't involve a futon. <laughs> and so we were becoming more interested in these other aspects of our lives besides just fashion. So there was sort of like the personal draw as well. Then we also had the science of it. So we test everything that we do. We test it when it's just an idea. We test it to see what's most effective. We test to see what resonates. So there's really a lot of data involved in all of the business decisions that we make. And then there's also the community piece of it. So as I mentioned, you know, we've always had this really robust social media following and community and audience because in part we talk to them directly and always have. Now that notion is considered very, you know, standard today, but 12 years ago, five years ago. It was not. Three years ago, even. It wasn't. Right. So we have all of this historical data and these relationships that we have built up with our audience for over a decade. So we really are able to go and say like, hey, you know, talk to a one of our secret Facebook communities or talk to, you know, our most influential newsletter readers or whatever it may be and really ask them questions and say like, what do you think about this? And, you know, how do you feel about X, Y, and Z? And like, what appeals to you? And again, that too feeds the data piece of it. So really using all three aspects to sort of help make these decisions and really identify white space, coupled with the fact that sometimes you just have a hunch about things. So the other piece of all of this is that to some degree, we also keep making things for ourselves. And I think that having that personal touch is actually a really great thing. I think that there's, you know, obviously something so amazing about going into a white space that you don't know anything about and that you don't personally have any skin in the game. But for us, a lot of this also is sort of initially founded in our own personal interests. And I think that's something that people don't always talk about because it's, you know, it's a little nebulous and a little touchy feely, but it truly is something that has guided some of our insights, at least initially. 
one thing I never forget, because we like to try things a lot too, is, you know, when Snapchat first launched, it was me and it was Taco Bell and I was like alone. <laughs> was it? It was just the two of us Down Snapchatting. <laughs> um, have you ever, you know, gotten onto a platform or tried something and really messed up or had this like worry, like, is this ever going to work? Like, what am I doing? I I don't think so in terms of platforms, just because, you know, like we're in the content business yeah. first and foremost. Yeah. And so that's like really, while we do lots of other things, that part storytelling in that way is something that is so much a part of who we are that it feels easy and comfortable and cool. I don't think that there's ever been a moment when it comes to platforms where we felt like pant us sitting in the middle of an empty field and like <laughs> birds chirping and us just waiting there. You know, like I'm a big social media consumer myself. So if I can find a way in, I realize there's usually a business opportunity to it as well. I mean, there definitely have been other business moments where everyone was jumping in on something and we just didn't. And we were worried that that was a mistake on our part. Um, and then usually it's turned out in our favor. Um, but I, I do know that feeling of like making a business decision and then sort of wondering if it was the right one, one way or the other, just not with social media for us. Totally. So, um, one thing, you know, that I sometimes get a lot of is as a designer, you know, how do you balance the data side with the artistic side? And I'd be stupid if I didn't listen to the data. Um, and you know, some people just want to be purely artistic and just hope that like, you know, you find an audience and they love you. So how do you use that data and how does it inform your design process, especially I would ask about your clothing line? So it really informs our Who What Wear collection, which is our line that we do for Target um, in so many ways. It really helps us, you know, with storytelling in general. I can think about, for example, when we were first working on the initial launch collection, we sent out basically like a quiz to, you know, um, several thousand of our nearest and dearest subscribers, people who had been with us for the long haul and said, hey, we're working on this secret project. If you are interested in helping, we would love your input, no pressure. And one of the things that we did was a lot of like pattern discussion. And so we had all of these different prints that we would show people and say like, do you like this on a shirt? What about on a skirt? Would you wear this on a pant? Would you wear this if it was bigger? Would you wear this if it was smaller? And I remember one of the dummy prints that we put in just, you know, to, as sort of as filler was this very simple polka dot print, black and white, black ground, white polka dot. And we had this amazing response to it. And it was this sort of funny thing because in theory, we should have known. I mean, we know how polka dots go over with our audience. We know that they're a classic. We know that they come back and that there's always a variation of it. We know that polka dot print dresses and other pieces have historically done well. We just weren't really thinking about going in a polka dot direction. And But we saw this overwhelming data come in, and it actually made us really excited. We ended up creating a polka dot for that initial collection. And, you know, several years later, we use it or a variation of it in every single collection because it has become this thing that it just, it's like our signature polka dot. And it was this funny moment because we thought we knew better, and then 
the audience came back and all of the data said very clearly, like, no, you need a polka dot in with the rest of this. And then, you know, we took that advice and worked around it and ended up creating things that we really loved. And so it was so much fun because so much of this process has felt like a collaboration with our audience. And that, to me, is much more exciting than when we get to just design something sort of in a vacuum. Like, that's cool too, but I actually, I sort of like the project runway challenge aspect of it all. I think sometimes having constraints makes you more creative. I mean, it certainly did with starting our company. It's like having financial constraints makes you scrappier, like having, you know, sort of data constraints make you scrappier. You need to, you know, we still design pieces that we have no data on that no one likes, but that we feel really emotional about. And invariably those pieces do really well also, I think probably because we do great storytelling around it. But, you know, it's it's just that balance. It's like you can't be all data, but you can't be all just art and innovation. I think you have to listen to both sides. It's a balance. You mentioned Catherine several times, and I have a co-founder as well. And he and I are very different people. He's, you know, a little bit more serious, whereas I'm a little bit more not, I guess, not serious. And you guys, (laughs) I I can't think of another word for it. But, you know, I know you far better than I know Catherine, but how did you even know you'd be a great team? Well, we were friends for a year before we started the company. So we knew that we got along. We were aware that we were quite different. And I think actually that is part of why we have worked so well together over all of these years. I always say that the Venn diagram of our skill sets has very little overlap. She is tremendous in so many ways. And it's so unbelievable for me because then I don't have to worry about X, Y, Z. I mean, it's really like she is so good at so many things. And yes, we have definitely different personalities. To be honest, I think that we've probably become more different as time has gone on, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because we're both only children and um, maybe it's that I I, I don't have a sister, but maybe there's a little bit of that, like, well, if you're going to have your hair this way, I'm going to have my hair this way. Um, But I I really do think that it's helpful to have a co-founder who has different skill sets. You know, um, there are certain things, too, where we said very early on that basically, like, when push came to shove, if one of us felt so incredibly strongly about something and the other felt sort of like ho-hum about it or whatever, we would just go with the person who felt more strongly. So I think the fact that we were friends in the beginning and that we had some sort of ground rules for like how we interacted was helpful. And then I think the fact that we just appreciate the skills that the other person has. One of the things I do love about you and I've always loved is that you are a yes person. You've said yes to me when you didn't have to or could have said you were busy or (laughs) I had someone... Yes, to you, because you're amazing. Oh, well. I feel honored that you would even ask me to do something. Oh, come on. Like, be on the panel? Sure. Like, do X? Yes. Like, I just, I, I, yes, I do. I'm a yes person with you. I'm sure there are lots of people who would not say that. <laughs> okay, well, then I guess my question is irrelevant because I was going to say, <laughs> you well, know. I meant mostly my husband. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just the time that we're going through as new moms. That that's the reason why it's always no right now, right? Well, 
it's just, <laughs> I, my thing is, is that like, I have so, I have finite resources right now in terms of like internally, because I have a baby and I'm still getting used to that and used to the lack of sleep. And, and I, I feel so, so sorry for him sometimes because he is a real, really social creature and I am a Virgo. So I am, even though I am social as well, I'm very like schedule oriented. And so he wants to take our baby to whatever thing. And my fear is always like, well, when is the baby going to nap? The baby normally naps at this time. If Clark <laughs> doesn't get his nap, then the rest of the day is shot. And then he's going to be upset. And then this is going to happen. And then his brain won't grow properly and blah, 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 blah. So, <laughs> whereas my husband is like, can't we just go with the flow? I'm like, it's a baby. No, you cannot. We have to have a schedule. So right now he's hearing a lot of like, Yes, and or like no, but from me a little bit, but no, I, you're right. I run, I run on the yes side of things. Well, I love it, and I think clearly it's helped. But you know, in media, and I would say in fashion specifically, publications, you know, there has been a little bit of an environment, at least I've encountered here, of women not helping each other, and you've been the oh, opposite. No. You've been the opposite no, no, of that. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you are correct. Women do have have not historically been each other's champions in this industry. So how is that knowing you've had that experience, knowing I've had that experience, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast was how did you, you know, sort of take it on as your responsibility to create an environment where women support each other or to be that yes person that does support other women? Well, I think I got lucky in that the women who I worked for at Elle magazine were amazing. And more importantly, the women who they hired to be assistants all at the same time, sort of I always joke and call them my pledge class, um, are some of the most incredible women I've ever met. And there's this group of us, I think there are five, five or six of us, and we're all still really great friends. And we were all assistants together. And I remember we would go out to drinks after work and we would talk about, you know, sort of the dynamics that we saw within the industry, people behaving badly, which they did back in the day. I mean, much more publicly, I feel like social media has been a good thing because people are not like, you know, going quite as all out crazy as they used to. Oh, definitely not. They're afraid, <laughs> because they're afraid that we'll end up on social somewhere. But we used to talk about the fact that we noticed that a lot of our slightly older colleagues were not friends. And if someone left the magazine to go to another magazine, which was very common and the only way that often you could get a raise or a promotion, then it was all of a sudden like their friends from the first magazine were dead to them. And it just seemed weird. And I remember going, even when we first started Who, What, Where, and we would go to fashion shows and editors, like the editor-in-chief of Elle, was seated next to, who's Robbie Myers at the time, was seated next to Glenda Bailey. And it was this, you know, like the PR team was having a heart attack because two editor-in-chiefs should never be sat next to each other. And it just felt so weird to me. It's so weird. That, that <laughs> I mean, it's like, the especially the higher up you go, the smaller the industry gets, it's all the same people. Why wouldn't you have a good relationship with someone. Why should I stop being friends with my friend just because she went to Vogue or she went to InStyle or she went to W or she went to Bazaar? That just seemed weird. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but it just seemed very odd. So this initial group of women who I was an assistant with at L, there's a picture of us on my um 
framed in my house of us linking pinkies and promising that we would never be that way. And we've gone in all of these different directions, but we've all stayed friends. We support each other. We're so excited for each other. And I think, you know, being in that environment early on and making that conscious decision from the beginning of my career, again, like, it's just that that's informed how I look at the world. And I also think the lucky part about starting a media company, which is how our company started, you know, back in 2006 was, you know, first of all, we were in LA, which was weird. And we were outsiders because we were digital. So we also, it allowed us to report on fabulous women at different media publications in different parts of the fashion industry. So part of the DNA of our company has always been celebrating these women because we always thought it was so weird that like, oh, why was it that you like if you were an L editor, you couldn't you couldn't acknowledge the fact that a bizarre editor was super cool and looked great in street south photographs like she it would just never run that way. But because we were outsiders, we could do that. And then we would have the best content because it, we weren't limited to only showing one team or one brand. So um, I think, uh, you know, it's been a lot of things that have conspired um, to make me a yes person. Um, but I, I really think it goes back to sort of those early days of having a really great tribe of women who supported each other. So I saw that happen from the beginning for me. So you're now running a media empire, designing, doing a podcast, being a <laughs> wife and a mom. So new I mom. <laughs> new mom. Um, who are some of the women that help you that have just stood out for you as like allowing you to take on what you took on? You know, I always look back to that group of my original editor friends. Mm -hmm. They have been my sounding boards through all kinds of ups and downs in their careers and mine. Um, they have just really been there for me for so many, in so many ways. Um, I also, you know, think that there are a lot of, I'm lucky enough to be around so many entrepreneurial women here in Los Angeles and so many creative women. Jen Atkin, who is the most amazing hairstylist and creator of the product line Way. She and I have been friends for over a decade, and she has always been such a champion, such a hustler. She, when she was building her career, helped us out. Like, we have tried to help her as, as often as we can, too. So, and also just the fact that she's like crazy inspiring, uh, you know, really self-made and still remains the most down-to-earth, hysterical, lovely, unjaded human, despite the fact that she's like a ginormous jet setter with a huge career and a multi-brand empire and, you know, like beef fries with a million celebrities. She's still just Jen. So I think that, you know, Jen has really been someone who inspires me and who I appreciate. Um, plus, I'm lucky enough to have the most amazing co-founder that anyone could ask for. Catherine is just an incredible human. She's so smart and I have so much respect for her. And she is just a born entrepreneur on every level. So I feel very lucky to have her on my side as well, or to be on her side, to be on the same team. <laughs> <laughs> no sides. <laughs> so um, one thing I ask all my guests is something that we would be surprised to know about you, and I'll put you at ease first, um, because, you are, <laughs> because you are a new mom. Um, you know, when I first had my son and I was pumping and we ran out of half and half one morning, I was like, it can't be that bad. I'm just going to put some in my coffee. 
And my husband watched me with this like <gasps> look on his face, like, what no are you doing? And I tried it and I was like, oh, that's just gamey. That's just real gamey. And I was like, never wow. again. But um, I don't know if you have anything. I mean, people eat their placentas. <laughs> How is that? It's not that different. <laughs> yeah, but if you eat your placenta, at least when I ate mine, it was in vitamin form. So I didn't have to taste it. But tasting, oh, I don't know. Pr- tasting the breast milk in your coffee is something that I'll <laughs> never do again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you did that though because I've always wondered I've never I have not actually Don't do tried it. it. Stay away. Okay. <laughs> Noted. Noted. <laughs> More for him. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um so something people would be surprised about about me. Yeah. Ooh, um I feel like I really put a lot out there. I don't have much of like a shame factor, but and this is such a silly thing, but I am a deeply fanatical and devoted person to bathing. So I, (laughs) I really like, I cannot, like I have, I function with a minimum of two showers a day and it can go up from there relatively drastically. Well, I know why you have the first one because I see you on your workouts and you are. (laughs) (laughs) So I, 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 when I get up in the morning, first thing I do is take a tiny trampolines class. Um, so I have to take a shower after that because I'm dripping, but I am the sort of person I cannot go to sleep unless I've had a shower. So to go to bed feeling unclean, like the idea of like washing my face and my feet is not enough for me. I have to take a shower. And truthfully, like if I'm then, if I go out after work, like, so I might take a shower, like a quick shower just for cleanliness sake before going into work. But then I will, if I have an event or going out at night, take a shower before doing all of that. And that's more of like the doing my hair, shaving my legs, sort of more beautifying shower. But then I will still take another shower on top of that when I come home before I get in bed. I'm impressed. I also, you know, if it's the weekend or I'm working on a project, or like something isn't going well, if I am able to take a shower, I will do it. For me, it feels like a mental reset, the same way that like I struggle with sleep. It's never been something I'm great at. And if I have a bad night of sleep, I will change my sheets, sometimes in the middle of the night. At least it's getting harder to do that with a husband. He is less down for that. (laughs) But when I was single, I would 100% like get out of bed, change my sheets in the middle of the night. Cleaning for me, whether it's like my body or, you know, items around me that helps me feel in control and reset and like prepared for the next phase of my day or night compulsively. So, yeah, I'm a I'm an overbather. Okay, overbathers unite. <laughs> there can be a private Facebook group for that too. <laughs> I, I mean, it just I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. <laughs> so my last question is, and one again, one thing I want women to walk away with is some great advice. Um, so, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Um. I really think that just the most important thing is to be your own best advocate. And I think that's difficult for a lot of women to do. I know it's something that's difficult for me to do. And I read this amazing article many years ago in Psychology Today, and it was about LeBron James and talking about why LeBron James speaks about himself in third person when analyzing his work sometimes. And the idea was it sort of like creates distance from you so that you can evaluate yourself without it feeling emotional. Um, My version of that is when 
arguing for something on my behalf, which is one of the things I struggle with the most. I often have to sort of disassociate and think about the fact that I think about how I would argue for something if this was for my friend. Because I think that we find it really easy to be an advocate for our friends or for our loved ones or for someone who we believe in. But it feels weird when you're trying to do that for yourself. So sometimes I will just have to sort of imagine and get myself in that headspace of like, I'm actually arguing on behalf of like a dear friend and not for myself personally. And that switch seems to help me in some way. So I just really think that a lot of times women don't are not always their own best advocates. And however you can figure out how to do that, in my case, it involves some self-trickery. But if you can figure out how to do that, you are going to flourish and be ahead of the game and get the things that you actually deserve and want, which is really important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to call you every week. I know. It was great. Bye, my dear. Bye. That was Hillary Kerr, co-founder and chief ideation officer of ClickBrands. You can find her on her Instagram at Hillary Kerr. Also check out her incredible podcast, which I'm obsessed with, Second Life, for some daily inspiration. Please rate and review us on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Super Women. Tune in next week. Super Women is brought to you by Prudential, promoting their new project, The State of Us. Today, less than half of us believe we're on track to meet our financial goals. America is changing, and with it, the financial challenges we face. That's why Prudential has partnered with wellness expert Alexandra Drain. They're traveling across the country, talking to real people in a project called The State of Us. From the town with the longest lifespan, to the town with the highest birth rate, to the smallest town in America. Their goal is to uncover challenges getting in the way of financial wellness. Because even though our challenges may seem overwhelming, Prudential believes there's a path forward for everyone. To learn more about the financial challenges facing America, visit prudential.com forward slash state of us.